Welcome to the Darkened Doorway podcast, your doorway to everything crimey, murdery and weird. Hi Darklings and welcome back. Today we're going to be continuing on with Catherine Knight and uh, let's jump right into it. What do you reckon? Good idea. So we left you on John Price. So let's talk about John Price for a minute. John was born on April 4th, 1955 and was the oldest of six children. He wasn't much into school and left when he was only 14, which affected his literacy skills. But John was a hard worker and found work in construction and heavy machinery operation in the mining industry. John actually married a lady in 1973, we think. Um, she, we aren't 100% sure on the date, but she was called Colleen and they had three children before his marriage ended in 1988. Jonathan, Rosemary and Rebecca. When this marriage ended, his two-year-old daughter, Rebecca, stayed with his ex-wife, but the two older kids, Jonathan and Rosemary, went to live with him. John had a good reputation and appeared well-liked by people, with people saying he was a terrific bloke. He even was apparently on good terms with his ex-wife, Colleen, which, as we know, can be a sticky situation. Certainly can be. John Price met Catherine Knight at a club and they began dating soon after. Okay, wait. I need you to stop and I need you to imagine Catherine at a club for a minute. Yeah, let that fill your mind. We haven't even described Catherine yet, Um, but let's, so she was a very fit, strong woman who'd been working in the abattoir. She's reasonably tall, bright red hair, glasses and freckles, boogie on down in the disco. Mm, Yeah, I think strong is a good, a very kind descriptor of her. If she ran at you in an alleyway, you would definitely run. Very fast in the opposite direction. (laughs) Now, since John was born and raised in Aberdeen, he was actually familiar with the stories of Catherine's violent tendencies. But in 1995, they moved in together. John's children liked Catherine, and apart from some violent arguments, John thought all was going well in his romantic life and his work life, as he was making good money also as a miner at the time. John had been working at his company for 17 years at that point and had a solid reputation. That is, until Catherine got upset with him due to his refusal to marry her, like she'd even gone so far as to steal money from him and buy herself an engagement ring. So, yeah, being the rational woman she was, she videotaped items John had allegedly stolen from his workplace and sent it to his bosses. And despite the items turning out to be just out-of-date medical kits that John had taken out of the company's waste, they still fired him. Crazy, isn't it? 17 years down the drain from uh, somebody that's unhappy and in home life with him. I can't believe the company fired him over some out-of-date medical yeah. kits. It just seems very strange. I think it's pretty wasteful that they just threw them out as well. Like, they, they don't really go off. Bandages don't really go off. So they would have just ended up in landfill. Mm. It's very strange. Maybe they didn't want to deal with the crazy either. <laughs> Anywho, that day, John kicked Catherine out of his house and she returned to her own and it being a small town, word pretty quickly got around about what she had done. The couple were arguing a lot to the point that John's friends wouldn't be around him while they continued with this relationship. 
Catherine was also not happy as she was trying at this time to get her hands on his house and even went so far as accusing John's children of molesting her children. She also started telling co-workers and her neighbours how she actually wanted to kill John, you know, normal conversational topics. So, by February 2000, John had had enough and after a particularly bad fight ending up with Catherine stabbing John in the chest, he threw her out of his house again. On the 29th of February, John attended the Scone courthouse and finally did something really sensible and applied for an AVO against Catherine in the hope of keeping her away from him and his children. John said something pretty chilling to his co-workers that afternoon. He said that if he didn't come to work tomorrow, it was because Catherine had murdered him. They urged him not to go home, but John insisted he had to go home to ensure that Catherine didn't hurt or kill his children. Thankfully, when John got home, he found that Catherine wasn't there and the children had been sent for a sleepover at a friend's house. John then spent the evening with his neighbours before coming home at 11pm and falling asleep. During that day, Catherine had been super busy. She had gone for a little retail therapy, buying herself some black lingerie and then making videotapes for each of her children, which police later interpreted as a will. You know, girl stuff. Amazing. She then went to John's house and sat down to watch a few minutes of TV while John was sleeping before going and taking a shower and then climbing into bed with John and waking him up. The pair then had sex, after which John went back to sleep. See, I don't know how John didn't freak out at that point. Like, suddenly she's there, you've just got an AVO, and she's like, oh, hey, let's just snuggle after you go to the courthouse and get an AVO. There is a story that he'd mentioned to friends that he'd actually been in fear of his life the night before because he'd woken up and she was standing there with her hands behind her back at the end of the bed. And he thought that she had a knife at that point. She didn't. She just was staring at him while he slept. Oh. Not creepy, not creepy. Not creepy at all. No, definitely. No. Definitely not disturbing. Mm-mm. Mm. Normal. So the next morning at 6am, John's car was still sitting in the driveway, which was highly unusual because he would have left for work by then. So his neighbours were very concerned and once he didn't turn up at work, his employer was so concerned that he actually sent another employee to check on him. Both the employee and the neighbour tried to rouse John by knocking on his bedroom window, but it was then that they noticed blood on the front door. They called the police. The police arrived and broke down the rear door to the property, finding Catherine comatose inside, having taken a bunch of pills, allegedly, and finding some of John's body in the lounge room. Deceased. Mm, Some of him, you say. Yes, some of him. So the previous night, after John had gone back to sleep, Knight had decided to stab him with one of the butcher's knives. John awoke and tried to turn on the light before attempting to get away from Catherine. He ran out into the hallway and made it all the way to the front door. He opened it, but either stumbled back in or was dragged back into the house, where he collapsed on the lounge room floor and bled out. It was found that Catherine had stabbed John 37 times. What Catherine did next, though, was absolutely depraved. Catherine was quite skilled with those butcher's knives, so she decided to use these skills on John's body, and over the next few hours, she skinned and decapitated John, 
hanging his skin in the archway between the dining room and the lounge room. She then proceeded to take John's head and part of his body and make a stew out of it in the kitchen. She even made gravy to go along with it because, you know, condiments, important. Catherine then served up John's body with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, cabbage, yellow squash and zucchini. Oh, so it was a good balanced meal. Yeah, well, let's say balanced. She then set plates for John's children with name cards set next to them. Now, some sources said she set three spots for all of his children's, others say only two. And also one serve was found thrown in the backyard with the theory that Catherine had tried to eat it but was unable to. Catherine, however, was set on feeding John to his children. I heard another story as well that there was another theory that she actually tried to feed it to the dog outside as well and that's what the one that was thrown in the backyard was. Um, but I could only find that on one like one source, so who knows if it's true. Mm, it was listed as a chunk of meat in the backyard and apparently it was his gluteus maximus. Mm. So that makes that kind of lends more to the theory that it may have been for the dog. Why? Because remember, she had all the veggies. If she was going to eat it, wouldn't she give herself the veggies as well? But if it was the dog, she was more likely just to throw a piece of meat to the dog. And I don't know if it was cooked either. Mmm, yuck. Oh, do you not want? My dogs wouldn't eat it if it wasn't cooked anyway. They're ladies. <laughs> ladies. They do lady things. Catherine then apparently took a bunch of pills and laid down on the couch. And I say allegedly, and I'll touch on that later. So when the police arrived, they found John's head along with the veggies in the pot on the stove still, and it was still warm, which indicated to investigators that she'd cooked it at some point earlier that morning. They found the rest of John's body with his left arm draped over an empty 1.25 litre soda bottle and the legs crossed. That sounds comfy. Yeah, I don't really get the significance of this. So if anyone can explain it to me, please let me know. But the court claims it was an act of defiling John's body and showing her contempt for him. I feel like the whole, you know, cutting him up and serving him to his children was already a big defiling act, more so than how she placed it. But anyway. But Catherine had also written a note about Price and put a photo of him with little bits of flesh and blood on it. Now, this is a bit rough um, because, remember, her literacy wasn't amazing. So it says, time got you back, Jonathan, for rapping, as in raping, my doubter daughter, you two Becks, which referring to Price's daughter, for Ross, for little John, now playing with little John Dick's Price. And so, okay. Mm. Um, so... Little John was his son? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Little John must have been his son that he was oh. referring to. And talking about okay. Little John's dick, John Price. I have no idea oh. what that means. Okay. But probably referring. All of my urges to correct that grammar are like screaming at the moment, as I'm sure yours are. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, and uh, apparently she is referring to... Uh, his kids molesting her kids um, is, is what we took from that. Oh, God. Now, all of these accusations proved to be groundless and perhaps may have been some kind of delusion that she was having. Who knows? 
So one thing actually that um, we didn't really go into um, was the policemen that actually entered the scene first. So they broke in through the back back door um, after finding the blood on the front door. And apparently there was also spray from where he'd coughed onto the screen door too. So he'd almost gotten out the front. Um, it was complete bloodbath. Oh. Anyway, they said that they could smell this nice smell in the house, like someone had cooked a nice stew. Um, and the, the smell was sort oh, of permeating no. the house. And um, two uh, police officers, um, one less experienced and one quite experienced police officer, um, entered the back door of the house. Um, and as they walked into, into the house, they saw what they what they thought was a curtain hanging across the archway. And as the younger police officer went to move it aside, he um, he brushed it, pushed it aside with his arm and he said he remembered feeling how cold it was. And then he looked down on his arm and he saw oh. wetness and that wetness was blood. And it took him a moment to realise oh. that it wasn't actually his blood from breaking in, but it was actually a, a skin, the full human pelt um, minus the head, but including oh. the genitals, she did an amazing job at skinning out his, uh, his, his skin, including spending quite a bit of time around the genital area. Oh, my God. That's so disgusting. <laughs> that's so disgusting. That poor police officer, he must have wanted to, like, scrub his arm off. Oh, yeah. Apparently, uh, uh, quite a few people that had um, exposure to the site ended up with quite a bit of PTSD, describing it as one of the worst murder scenes that they'd ever walked in on. Yeah, I can I can fully embrace that. That would have been absolutely horrific. So after waking Catherine up, she was arrested and went to face trial. Initially, she claimed that it was manslaughter. Yes, she accidentally stabbed him 37 times, then tried to feed his carved up body to his kids. So naturally, that was completely rejected. Mm, sounds legit. Completely legit. It was rejected and she was charged with murder, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. Now, the crime was so heinous that they did have some trouble getting their jury together. After telling them about the basics of the trial, they were offered to leave due to the distressing nature of the crimes and the photographic evidence. Five of the jurors actually did leave at that time, and once they read out the witness list, several more dropped out. Luckily, the next day, Catherine changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. Lucky people. Can you imagine going through that trial? Mm, yeah. No. No fun. The judge ordered a psychiatric assessment to be performed on Catherine to ensure she understood what pleading guilty meant. And her defensive team also were hoping that they would be able to support a claim of amnesia and disassociation, even though she was sane. The psychiatrist found that Catherine had a borderline personality disorder. And perhaps this helps explain why, even though Catherine pled guilty, she never actually accepted responsibility for her crime. She even went so far as to request to not have to hear the facts of her crime in court and asked to be excused, which thankfully was refused. Apparently, when the forensic pathologist Tim Lyons described the skinning and decapitation to the court, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. Oh, but okay, she did that. Like, dude, you did that. What the hell? There is some talk of it seems that she would throw tantrums and chuck herself on the ground um, at particular times during the court to try and create an adjournment and to try and support her claim of uh, insanity. But um, they saw through that, luckily. 
how how would you not laugh at a grown woman doing that? Like, as the judge, how would you just not sit there going, you just look ridiculous right now? It's probably why they sedated her. (laughs) So on the 8th of November 2001, Justice O'Keefe pointed out to the court that the violent nature of the crime and Catherine's distinct lack of remorse required a severe penalty to be applied. And he justifiably sentenced Catherine Knight to life imprisonment and that her file be marked never to be released. And that was the first time a woman has ever had that imposed in Australia, like ever. I think it was like a justifiable time to actually give that sentence, just saying. 100%. Catherine, however, didn't think that this was super fair and that her killing wasn't really that bad. And she actually appealed the life sentence in 2006 but and was promptly told, yeah, nah with three justices of the Court of Appeal dismissing it and Justice Peter McLean saying, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilised society. So to this day, Catherine Knight is a guest of His Royal Highness King Charles and is serving her sentence in Silverwater Prison in Sydney. But she's not lonely. According to a 2021 article, John Chillingsworth, who she was with for that three years where she had her son Eric, still goes and visits with her and he said she's a changed woman and is doing really well. There's an article where he actually talks about his visits and he said she goes to see a psychiatrist regularly and over the years she's done a lot of self-improvement work. The last time I visited her in Silverwater Jail was about 18 months ago. We spoke about family, old times, what she's been doing in prison and she's been doing really well. She does pottery classes and she's pretty good at it. She likes painting. She seems calmer and mixes with the other girls. It's like a big dormitory, but she gets on with everyone and they call her grandma. She's aged a bit. I like this bit. She's <laughs> she's aged a bit, a hell of a lot, actually. She looks older in the face and her hair is not as fiery red. It's grey now. She's also put on a little bit of weight. Goodness, Mr. Chillingsworth. Wow. Really? That's the bit he focuses on, that she's not, like, summer body ready? Ugh. Mr. Chillingsworth then went on to say that despite her horrific history of relationships and domestic violence, he was never in fear during his three years with Knight. In that time, they had a son, and it was for this reason that he began going to visit her in prison, because, and get this, he didn't want him to grow up without a mother. Like, surely there are worse things. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, especially when your mother is Catherine Knight. <laughs> yeah. He said that despite the order that she never be released, Knight still holds ambitions of one day walking free. And having seen a significant change in her personality and demeanour over the years, hopes a non-parole order will one day be overturned. Here's another quote from that article. She would like to get out for her children's sake and to meet her new grandchildren. She would love that, said Mr Chillingworth. Is she a threat to society? No, I don't believe so. Not from what I can make out. But would society accept her for being released? I would say no. My eyes are rolling so hard in the back of my head right now. It's going to require surgery to get them to be like <laughs> able to look forward. <laughs> He then went on to say, at first I found it hard to believe that she couldn't remember killing Pricey, but when I thought about it, something that horrific, do you just like black out? 
When she realized the severity and the reality of what she had done, she wanted to kill herself. She was horrified. Everyone made Pricey out to be some angel, but Pricey was never an angel. What happened to him was the worst imaginable. It was horrific, but it was a volatile relationship. I knew him well years before he was seeing Catherine. I think everyone deserves a second chance, Mr Chillingworth said. Oh, eye rolls, eye rolls as far as the eye can see. <laughs> can't, can't even. Like, honestly... I think John Price deserves a second chance and his kids deserve to have their dad around. So, yeah. But thank you to the Daily Mail for that lovely article. So last up, I wanted to talk about Catherine's brother, Neville Knight, a.k.a. Neville Rohan. So apparently, Neville also found himself on the wrong side of the law and was charged with over 100 child sex offences dating all the way back to the 1970s. He was a child youth worker and sexually offended against numerous boys in his time in the job. Neville is currently also a guest of the King. So that brings us to the end of Catherine Knight, and what a shocker she and her family are. Until next time, Darklings, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Darkened Doorway Podcast. And remember, your support lets us keep on being silly and doing this podcast. So keep it dark. Bye-bye-bye. Fantastic.